Why don't you purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka? Welcome to InterVR, the podcast where we talk about all things virtual reality. I am Chris Miranda, your host. And on today's show, I have Stefan Pernard, the uh, co-founder of the Australian Virtual Reality Association, the managing director of Virtual Reality Ventures, and his team has been working, him and his team have been working on the virtual reality fashion show demo that's been showing off all over the world. Uh, it's been on the subreddit. It was, uh, he was at uh, the SVVR conference showing it off, and uh, there's an upcoming much more refined prototype in the works. Uh, Stefan, thanks so much for your time, and, and, and thank you for coming along on the show. Chris, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a blast because, uh, you know, I met you at SVVR and, you know, we, we sat down for a little bit and you've in that, like, I think we talked for like 15, 20 minutes. And in those 20 minutes, I you've took me places I had no idea I would go. Um, just like all the different variety of subjects and, and your passion for virtual reality. You know, walk me through really quick, you know, your history into coming into this industry. You know, how did it all start? Uh, well, well, Chris, it was really a pleasure meeting you over there and all the other people at the SVVR conference. It really felt being part of the family and was so good. Um, really enjoyed our little discussion. And, um, yeah, look, my, my history, I'm really just a big, a big old-fashioned geek, okay? I, I, I had my first computer in, uh, uh, in 1983. It was the VC20, the, the Wolf's computer, the German, the German word for people's computer, with 20 kilobytes of RAM. And when you spend two hours just typing a program in there, then you build up the RAM, and um, it's just uh, completely different than what you have today. And then over the years, I upgraded that and upgraded that and went from a, um, you know, a, a relatively modest uh, um, computer capabilities back then to, you know, late 2003 MacBook Pro, and it's just um, all this accelerating uh, technology just captured my imagination. And... Um, yeah, I made a living doing uh, corporate IT for big corporations such as Siemens, for example, over in China. And in my last job, I was the chief information officer for Frontline Stores Australia. But when I put the rift on for the first time, you know, late last year, it just absolutely blew me away. And I, I just had to do something with that technology. And that's why I started Virtual Reality Ventures. And that's what I'm doing full time since then. Very cool. Um, so, so what, what was it about at that moment in, in the rift that that you know what was what was the thoughts inside your head that made you realize that this is here, this is this is going to be a thing? Well, Chris, you know that the only thing that will really help to explain what the rift is is if you put it on yourself and you have the experience. And I have been hearing about the technology uh, in podcasts and on the internet and everything, and everybody was raving about it. And I thought, okay, I just have to try this out myself. So I. I bought one myself and I actually had a video of me unboxing the machine and trying it out for myself and I did the Tuscany demo and I put it on and I thought, oh, there's the screen door and okay, I'm a bit disappointed. But then I walked into the house and I saw the fire and it was such an emotional experience uh, for me. Just It really connected to me on a very deep level. And from that moment forward, I, I just knew I had to do something with it. How, so how did, uh, really quick, how did virtual, virtual reality... Uh, ventures get involved with virtual reality fashion, and and what's what's going on uh, in that in that area. I mean that you know, I feel like fashion came out of complete left field. I, I think it was one of the most unique 
and original ideas that were at the SVBR conference. I mean, I just, you know, off the top of my head, I know immediately VR is applicable in medicine and education, obviously entertainment, obviously pornography, but, but fashion, you know, how did this come about? Well, um, that was actually not 100% my idea, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. uh, when we started out with all of this, I just showed the technology to everybody I knew in my network, and one of the people I showed it to was Brad Partington from Sydney Street in Adelaide, and he has a ladies' wear uh, clothes shop over there, and I just wanted to share it with him and, and see you know, what he thought, what his ideas was, and he said, you know, the cool thing about virtual reality is you, know, you can have experiences that would otherwise be too dangerous or too expensive, and, and make it very personalized. So, and he challenged me to come up with a, um, a virtual reality fashion show. And at first I stretched my head and I said, oh, okay, I'm not sure about that. Um, but then I researched the uh, possible pipelines uh, for it and we came up with something and the response has been so positive. And yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, during SVVR conference, you basically had prototype hardware and um, game experience experiences. And I think that's fantastic, but it's very much catering to the whole um, VR community um, as opposed to the larger group of mainstream, let's say, for example, retail or something like that. And, and that's really where uh, Virtual Reality Ventures is different from a lot of other companies, that we don't, that we actually specifically, we don't do games. Um, we try to consult corporate clients to uh, leverage this new medium, the final medium, you know, to grow their business and create customer benefit. And that's that's probably why it was, you know, a little bit different um, from from you know most of the other stuff that you've seen at SVDR. So uh, how? Uh... I mean, this is this is super interesting because that's a really good. I feel like that's a really good business model here. You, you got going. I mean, leveraging the power of virtual reality to uh, expand uh, businesses that want to be a part of the metaverse. Um, but but you know, how do you go from you know a, a you know your average business like man like uh, let's say let's say a company for that makes semiconductors comes up to you and says hey I we want to be a part of a virtual reality uh, we want to have a storefront inside the metaverse um, you know off the top of your head I know I'm throwing a curveball at you but like off the top of your head how do you how, how do you use virtual reality in 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 in, in, in businesses and in, in business sectors that would you know wouldn't have a straightforward path going into it well I think that's a really good question and um, at the moment, we are at the, still at the very, very early stages of virtual reality. Um, I just read an article yesterday that about 100,000 uh, rifts have been ordered in total, and that is including the pre-orders for the DK2. So, uh, you know, a community of 100,000 possible people who can consume content is not really um, very significant. So, in that particular stage that we are in, I think the best way for any company would be to just use virtual reality as a bit of an experience that they can provide to their customers. So every company does advertising, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when you, when you think about the semiconductor uh, business, I'm thinking, for example, Intel. And Intel is using, spending lots of, of money just to make sure that the brand sticks into people's minds and take up their mind share a little more than the other brands. And when you have something like virtual reality that is so 
um, powerful, especially now where a lot of people haven't even heard about it, or let alone experienced it themselves. And then you would create, you know, an um, um, an experience for a semiconductor business, for example, where they are positioning positioning themselves at a high throughput area, like a mall, for example, and then let them fly through the, you know, the, the processors in 3D, and then maybe explain how it how that is better than something else, and then use it in that way. And so, in that sense, I think uh, virtual reality is very applicable to almost any business. You know, I, I, want, I wanted to ask you another interesting question in, in, in that sort of aspect and, and businesses and, and even the aspect of advertising and marketing inside the metaverse, inside of virtual reality. Like, how will advertising and marketing differ inside virtual reality from the real world? Are we still going to be walking around or flying around a virtual uh, worlds and see ads, bill, ad billboards, you know, of buy... You know, uh, Trojan condoms, uh, or or like by you know Novin Falcons. Like, how will how will how do you think you know uh, marketing and advertising will be approached? Will it be more subtle? Will it be more bombastic and and and, and more in your face? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, this is where Facebook comes into the picture, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Um, Facebook is basically a free service, but um, that's the thing about free product on the internet. Is that if a product on the internet is free, then you are the product, and that is something a lot of people don't realize, right? Um, so how uh, will this affect virtual reality? I mean, in a very similar way, and that is about gathering behavioral um, uh, data in virtual reality, and then when you have where you move your head, this is something that you currently can't uh, easily track. For consumers, but once you have the rift on, it becomes trivial. Um, the same with you know the prior VR sensors or the the, the, the six sense uh, stem controllers. There will be so much more data that people, that the companies such as Facebook can gather and then create user profiles that will only require them to maybe know one half of one percent or zero dot zero one percent of their users. And then once they collect all these behavioral data and the patterns then they know from your behavior, how you move your head, you know, how you behave, the gestures, uh, how fast you walk, how often, how many times you jump around. And that is something that there's, as real research has been done on this, that they can then extrapolate that and have a very detailed idea about who you are, what your ambitions are, uh, what kind of products you might be interested in. And I'm not sure if you heard about this, but Amazon, they actually have a new model where they anticipate what kind of what kind of product you're gonna you're gonna uh, order next and what they do is instead of waiting for you to actually order the product like for example the, the latest uh, marvel movie or something like this they actually put it on the van to you and anticipate that you will actually order it before the van arrives at you and you have it basically you know within the minimum possible time frame um uh, in your possession um and I think all of this is going to be much more detailed and much more accurate in virtual reality. Eye tracking, head tracking, finger tracking, body tracking, this whole motion tracking thing. People will just know you so much better. And with people, of course, I mean faceless corporations.
That is insane to me. <laughs> Just thinking about that, like that is that. If you had told me something like this like, five years ago, maybe two years ago, even I would have been like, "That is science fiction, man. That is insane. No, no one's really doing that." But, but you know, it's it's true. I, I feel like I mean, that's how else how else would would Facebook make money in inside the metaverse and, and i don't know if you've uh, the news just dropped today that uh cardboard google uh is now uh jumping inside the vr game themselves and they're using this uh you know 30 dollar kit really inexpensive cardboard sort of kit that people can do even free actually you can do it yourself sort of thing uh, project and you you can buy these lenses for like 13 dollars um and then the the software is free and, and you can navigate Google Maps, Google Earth, uh, and, and uh, YouTube in the stereoscopic 3D virtual reality sort of environment. I mean, you know, now you have these two companies that, you know, Facebook and Google that monetize off of, you know, the user's information. Um, where does privacy fall into all of this? Is there is is this the mute point? Are we? I mean, you know, and for me, like, I don't mean to get like ramble, go off on a ramble, but but for me growing up with the internet like i i never thought of privacy i never thought i i was just myself inside the internet when i was in the you know growing up you know i was a teenager on the internet i mean i was you know the, you should have you should see the things i was saying inside the msn chat rooms back in the day like you know uh, fuck it it was just crazy uh, it, but now going inside the metaverse going inside virtual reality uh, i know that like what you've just said, like I know that you know these whoever it is 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 matching, uh, you know, is, is trying to find patterns and trying to find, you know, trying to put me in a category to, so that they can sell me shit. Like you know, I feel like that will change um, my behavior inside the metaverse. Uh, but I mean, but I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, is is privacy something that's a mute is or is it organic and move in, and growing with this, um, or is it just gone? I mean, what's going on? What do you think? Well, I think in the end of the day, corporations have an incentive to produce something for the consumer that the consumer wants in a, in a way that is acceptable to the consumer. Okay? The problem is when you have corporations and governments in cahoots trying to force things on people. Um, if as soon as the, com you know, the, the matter of force comes into play, and you are forced to do certain things that you otherwise wouldn't do based on your free will, then, um, you know, that becomes very problematic. Um, the term, in, in terms of privacy, of course, everybody who is being observed and who knows that he or she is being observed will change their behavior. And um, as soon as they change their behavior, it becomes a control mechanism. And... And that is where it becomes really problematic. Um, look, it, 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 is, it is a bit tricky. On the one hand, of course, I would like to have advertisements that are completely targeted to me. You know, inform me about a product that I really, truly want. Um, I would be happy about that. Yeah? If, if, if there would be an advertisement that would give me exactly what I want, even if I wouldn't know at that point that that's what I would want. So in that sense, I think good advertising has a consumer benefit. But then, um, how much do we want to really reveal things about ourselves? And I remember that you had a really fascinating interview with Reverend Kyle. I was Kyle about this. And, and, and Kyle was saying uh, something along the lines of, I have nothing to hide. I don't care. Right? But that's not, see, 
and I, I'm a huge fan of Kyle, but the problem is you don't know what you have to hide. You don't know all the laws that exist, right? Um, so it becomes a matter of self-incrimination at some point, at some level, when, um, you know, the matter of privacy, um, um, you know, moves into the realm of the, of, of, of the legal environment where, you know, there might be a hundred thousand laws and you don't know which ones of these laws you break on a daily basis. And of course it can't be enforced uh, consistently to everybody, but when it then becomes used as a, a control mechanism where selectively, you know, people are being targeted for these minor infractions that everybody does on a daily basis, that is becoming very dystopian, of course. And that is something we need to be very, very careful and work very hard to avoid. Yeah, uh, that's. I mean, thanks for bringing up that really in interesting point. Yeah, Reverend Kyle. I mean, he's. He. I feel like he represents a very important aspect of this conversation in terms of you know this is something that is. I feel like he knows that this is something that's going to happen. Uh, he's. He's full. Uh, he's. He's embracing it. He's. He's coming. He's going along for the ride. And, and I. And I. And I respect that very much. So. At the same time, you know, the whole privacy issue in my mind is not about me. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about you. It's you. Why are you, you know, why why are you watching me while I take a shit in the toilet? Like, why are you watching me while, I, you know, while I'm taking a shower? Like, that's, you know, that's when people like turn the privacy issue uh, and, and say like, well, if you don't, if you ain't got nothing to hide, then you shouldn't worry about it. Well, it's not about me, man. It's about you know, like who the person who's watching me, like you know, putting a restraint on on or, or or putting some limitations on what they can watch, how how they can watch it, and you know, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, you know, when when people say that, like it's not, you know, I don't have nothing to hide. Like it's not it's not about that. It's it's about you know the watchers. You know who's gonna watch the watchers? Um, and in my head, I'm like, well, the watched. It, it, I know it's really, really silly logic in that in that sense, but I feel like there's got to be a way to democratize the way we are being watched by governments and corporations, and and figure out like you know and have the real honest discussions about like do do I want you know do I want my Google search and my Facebook now now you saw Facebook is now targeting ads based on all your internet searches right and so most people don't have the I, I feel like don't have the information to to go on their computers and and go and 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 and, and get like a an ad block uh, program or or software that can you know hide their identities inside inside the internet like and it'll be I feel like it'll be that much harder in the metaverse. So what what happens now is this something that needs to happen on a policy legal level is this something that needs to happen from a, a grassroots perspective or do we have to vote with our wallets can i have my can i have my cake and eat it can i have the metaverse and also have some sense of privacy what, what do you think i think it's impossible to tell and i think as long as um the um you know the typical typical consumer will be on the level that uh, he or she is at the moment that will be very difficult to change. I mean, all of this is already known for a long time. Um, um, and, you know, the, the solutions, you know, there are solutions to these problems. But then, you know, having millions of people act as one to effect these kind of changes is a, is a political goal that I think will be difficult to accomplish without a major breach. So we need, we probably... I mean, to say we need is not the right term, but 
uh, in my experience, people only move after a big negative uh, event. So if we if we have a 9/11 of uh, internet privacy, then that will probably move people into action. But until then, I don't really have uh, a lot of hope for 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 meaningful change there. Sorry, sorry, I can't have a more positive outlook for you there, mate. So it, it would be out of it would be out of our responsibility to do it for ourselves and then uh, have the solutions when people uh, start to ask meaningful questions. Well, I mean, fuck it. I guess we're going straight into the matrix. <laughs> Let's go. Hop on the train, everyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's. A, I. I completely understand your sentiment. I. I, I think that this is a. Um, a, an issue that is going to be ongoing and a discussion that I need. I think the the minimum amount of work that we need to do to, to do is at least keep the discussion alive. Um, uh, you know, for whatever that's worth. You know, if if we just stop talking about this this thing that I think matters to all of us, we, yeah, then uh, you know the. the I, it, and it's not even an issue about like I was gonna say the bad guys win, but it's not an issue about the bad versus good. It's not it's not that clear cut. It's not it's not it's not a it's not a black or white issue either, you know. And that's the thing that makes it so complicated and makes it so difficult for for just the average person who has a life and has shit and bills to take care of, you know, uh, that much hard for them to to jump in and, and figure out. Um, so yeah, it's yeah it's it's gonna be. An interesting discussion uh, going forward. Let me change gears for a little bit, and and I want to sure. talk about your 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 fascination with the human brain, um, because uh, when I outreached you to get have you on the podcast, uh, I, I you've I became enlightened uh, with the fact that you are working on a book, uh, a a book of, on a virtual reality. Can you can you tell me really quick uh, about this, and you know what what is it all about? Um, absolutely, and you know. Um the virtuality is such a deep topic philosophically, uh, but factually. Um, and my experience has always been that the best way to learn about a subject is to actually try and explain it to somebody else. And the best way to do that is to write a book about it. And so what I have done is I've, I've sat down and I've, um, you know, spent, you know, a lot of my time trying to get some of these concepts, um, into, um, an understandable context, and um, yeah, and I hope to publish something uh, by before the release of the consumer version. Mm-hmm. And I sent you some sections of that, and um, yeah, happy to talk about that a bit more. And and one of the things there, or it's basically three aspects that I think we're going to talk about specifically today. And the first one is that the virtual is very real in in many ways. And I think a lot of people or everybody who has tried the, uh, the Rift or other VR um, solutions on, they will agree with that. And there are some specific examples that I would love to discuss with you. And then the other one is, so why is it actually, why, is the, why can the virtual be real? And um, we're probably going to spend some time on the evolution of cognitive functions to try to explain that a bit better. And then we can um, talk a bit more about um, the virtual of the real. So the real, what we call the real, is actually not that real as, uh, as as one would think when you think about it a bit deeper. So see how we go. This seems to be a pretty deep rabbit hole, mate. We're yeah. It's uh, if you're listening to this right now, uh, brace yourself, embrace your anus because we're about to go deep 
deep into the rabbit hole. I'm sorry I said anus. Uh, <laughs> this is this is a very fascinating a, a subject that I am always always thinking about. Like, what is the mind? You know, the the neurological human brain aspects of of virtual reality. And and you're touching on a subject that I that I think is uh, going to be pivotal in in the development of this industry in in this you know this thing that I think will encompass all of humanity eventually. Um, so, so look, I, I want to hit up first uh, on on the evolution of the human brain. Uh, you know, how did we, how did we get where we are now? I mean, I, I, man, I I sometimes understand when people say um, when when people find themselves in disbelief of the fact that we are you know uh, derived from from apes. You know, because it's just. You know, it requires a bit of imagination and, and, and also a somewhat, you know, this, this um, I feel like it requires a, a, a lot of curiosity to just really question who you are and what you are really, really deep inside. Like, you know, what, how did we get here where we are? You know, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions along the way because, you know, I, I don't think... I'll ever understand this frontier, the human brain. You know, I, in my mind, I feel like he, it, here we are in the 21st century, and, and I think that the frontiers of for humanity in this century are going to be uh, space, uh, the oceans, and, and the human brain itself. And I think that virtual reality, I'm rambling again, is a portal into the human brain. But but let's, let's start let's start with the let's start with the elemental stuff. Like, how how do we get where we are? Well, there is this idea that we have derived from the, you know, from the chimpanzee or from the monkey. And I just want to be a bit more specific about that theory. And of course, we're talking about Darwinian evolution here. Yeah. Um, I think it's more accurate to say that we have common ancestors with modern day uh, creatures. Mm -hmm. The closest is probably some form of an ape or some form of a monkey. Um, and uh, evolution stretches back so long into in time, you know, and has provided us with so much insight, you know, nothing makes sense in biology uh, without looking at it through the lens of evolution. And the evolution of cognitive mechanisms and the evolution of cognitive functions is one of the most fascinating areas enabling us to really gain a deep understanding about how we perceive the world, why we see things the way that we see them, and, um, you know, all the way up to ideology and religion and all these things. So I have a bit of a story that I put together over the past 10 years. And that is based on the account of a guy called Valentin Turchin. So he came up with the idea of metasystem transition theory. And that is a really fancy word for a system that evolves and then gains control, a higher level of control, um, on the next level of evolution, and that re process repeats itself um, uh, a certain number of times. Now, when you think about it, uh, our brain, you know, the most complex thing in the known universe, must have had uh, a, a very simple origin in evolutionary terms. So what that means is a very simple, let's say, single cellular organism, you know, a billion years ago, when you think about that, it was basically in this soup of nutrients and predators and everything else, and was just there without any awareness of its 
of its surroundings, just being moved around by natural forces, Brownian motion, you know, the wind, the currents and everything else. And it was made up by probably some kind of a, a simpler form of DNA where evolutionary mechanisms could work on, on its essential makeup. And for those of you who don't really have a good idea about what evolution is, evolution is basically the process of a random change and a non-random retention of changes that are beneficial to the reproduction and survival of an organism. Right? Mm -hmm. So mutations are essentially random. So you have beneficial mutations and they would then be carried forward. You would have um, you know, harmful mutation and then they would die out and you would have neutral mutations and they wouldn't affect anything. Yeah. Right? Now imagine that this simple organism, you know, back in primordial times, had a series of mutations that would allow it to control its position by simple movement. So this is again the notion of control, um, where you have random firings of the simple neuron, and then whenever there was a firing, there was a bit of a twitch, and then it could move around and then you know perform a random walk in its environment to gain, uh, you know, to go in a new environment, and then there get maybe more nutrients and, and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And proving beneficial to that organism, it would then be carried forward and then evolution would have more chance to actually work on that me mechanism and then uh, allow it to have a systematic search, you know, of course not conscious, but this is then the result of all these mutations, mm -hmm. a systematic search of its environment for nutrients so that it can optimize its uh, reproduction and its survival. So this would be the first level of the evolution of cognition, where you gain a control of your position by movement. Mm -hmm. um, and this, when you, when you take it to the next level, then the next level would then be the control of movement by a simple reflex. Okay? So that would then incorporate the ability to really sense your environment and say, okay, this is something that is that I need to get away from. You know, this is something I need to go towards to. And then based on the simple reflex, you would have a stimulus and a response. And the stimulus would come in, uh, a simple, you know, nervous, uh, neural structure would then process that and then would trigger um, a response in terms of movement in a particular direction, for example. Mm -hmm. And over evolutionary timeframes, thousands and thousands of years, you know, millions of uh, mutations, that could then be refined to be very precise. So as soon as you notice that there's a maid nearby or that there's, um, you know, some form of uh, nutrient nearby, you would move towards that. And as soon as you see, okay, for example, there's a predator nearby or something like that, you would, you would move as fast away as possible from that. Mm -hmm. So you would control your movement by simple reflexes. The next step would then be the control of simple reflex by by a complex reflex. And there we are getting into um, the realm of um, um, a bit more complex behaviors. So we are, we are talking, um, you know, instinctive behaviors. So for example, when you have um, a, a set of action patterns, like think about a dog, a dog um, would wherever the dog would be, it is something that you can easily observe. 
before lying down, the dog would scratch around and run around and then lie down. And that is basically an, an, an ingrained instinctive behavior where it's controlling simple reflexes, you know, to make a bit of a safe resting spot for itself. This is one of those, one of those ideas. And the other one would be if, you know, a little, now I'm from Australia, obviously, so a little Joey, so it's a baby kangaroo, can climb from the mother's, can climb into the mother's pouch and then attach itself to the, um, you know, to the, to the source of nourishment or something like this. Mm -hmm. This is something that doesn't have to be taught to it. It just knows that instinctively. So we went from the control of movement by, uh, the control of position by simple movement, control of movement through a simple reflex, the control of a simple reflex by a complex reflex or instinctive behavior. Let me stop you for really quickly. I I, I I have this you know this 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 idea inside my head that as I hear you speak, I'm I'm drawing parallels of of you know between the this the the evolution of of species um you know the, this this a billion uh, billions of year old process um and I'm drawing parallels with the evolution of machines and computers in our modern day time uh, uh, do you uh, sometimes i feel like i have heard i've heard this quote somewhere or maybe i'm making it up but i feel like uh you know humanity or technology is best when it imitates nature um you know is this parallel fair to make a parallel between you know the evolution of 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 uh, simple organisms to having uh, reflexes to then developing complex complex reflexes to you know between uh, computers that are, are start off with pong and then move on to <laughs> a super nintendo then off to you know ps4 i know that was a, a horrible analogy but like but you see what I'm, where i'm trying to get at um and and the question really in my mind at this point in humanity stage of you know computer evolution where where are computers in relation to you know the processing ability of, of living uh, living things um are, are, are computers uh, still have a lot to catch up to the the cognitive abilities of human beings and how long will it take before they reach us do you think okay some really big questions there Chris yes <laughs> sorry to come up with a couple of responses um, well, I think computers, as advanced as they are at this point in time, they're nowhere near um, anything that what we are doing at the moment on the human level. I mean, they're very impressive in certain areas. And there's this joke in computer science and artificial intelligence that as soon as the computer uh, you know, reaches a certain ability to perform um, a task that has previously been thought to be true artificial intelligence, like, for example, playing chess or something like that, then um, the goalpost gets set gets set uh, further away, and um, you know uh, that, that that wasn't that hard anyway. There was just a complex you know calculation or something like this. Um, the mechanisms that I'm describing here and meta system transition theory is actually a subset of cybernetic uh, theory. And when you think about the idea of a cybernetic organism then we you know we are back at cyborgs and we are bridging the the gap that you have um, identified there between the biological and the technological and i think there is a basic connection there because any meaningful behavior in a sense and when you think about the way or what computers do they're basically behaving in a very predictable um 
a complex way is is a cybernetic um, is a cybernetic form of behavior, and cybernetics is, is nothing else than having a certain awareness of your surroundings or your inputs, and then attaining a particular state in relation to that surrounding. So the simplest cybernetic mechanism would be a thermostat. So you would program the thermostat to be on a certain um, temperature level, and then uh, as soon as the temperature, when the temperature level is below a certain threshold, then you increase, you know, the the output of warm air, for example. And as soon as it reaches that threshold, you 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 uh, turn that off, and then you have a bit of a self-balancing um, uh, mechanism going on there. So I think there are connections. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and you're familiar with the work of Ray Kurzweil, obviously. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the singularity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, Will computers be as smart, in quotation marks, or as intelligent as human beings at some point? I think there's a possibility for that. Um, when this is going to be is very, very, very difficult to, to say. I, I don't think we have really sorted out the basic problems there yet. Let me ask you a more fundamental question, just to follow up really quickly. I know that there's so much to talk about, but fundamentally... What is self-awareness, and and at what point in the evolutionary stage of, of of species on planet Earth did we decide that this organism right there, that motherfucker is self-aware? How do we decide that? How do we know? How do we know it's self-aware? And then how do we draw that a a a lineation from you know that organism is self-aware to that computer all of a sudden is self-aware. Uh, 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 let's, I mean, uh, you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like I'm tr- uh, perhaps I'm trying too hard to draw parallels between the, the biological and technological, but, but perhaps in my mind, if we nail down really well what it is, what it means to be self-aware, what, is, what exactly is a self-aware organism um, you know, from the most fundamental level, perhaps we can further along our... Our, our research and our knowledge of what will make a self-aware uh, technological system. Uh, do, what do you what do you think on that? Well, I think something is self-aware when it has uh, some understanding about itself as an entity. Um, and in regards to the computer, I don't think we have self-aware machines at mm-hmm. the moment because I think that would require. Um, understand if we go along a bit further in regards to evolution of the cognitive functions mm-hmm. and then maybe try to draw or try to place current day modern day computers somewhere on that scale mm-hmm. and try to answer it then what do you think I'm, I'm down let's do this okay so what we have done what we have discussed so far is the complex the complex reflex and the thing so far in our account of the evolution of cognition is that complex reflexes is something that is very much hard-coded still in the DNA of an organism. So what that means is the way that an organism behaves or reacts to its environment is um, coded inside the DNA that makes up the cognitive structure of an organism. Okay. So in other words, if the environment changes, then the organism would have to mutate into a an, an adaptation to that change in environment that would take that could take several generations. Um, 
learning in that sense is only possible based on genetic mutations between generations. So ideally what we would do is we could would be able to control complex reflexes by um, being able to have associative learning as a cognitive mechanism. So what that would mean is the ability to change neural connections on the fly, so to speak. So when you go into a situation and you, well, not you, but if, if an organism would be in, in, in a situation where it would recognize something beneficial to its continued existence as such and would then adopt its behavior based on that information, then we would have an associative, associative learning capability that would then enable us to control complex reflexes on the fly within the lifetime of an organization of an organism as opposed to having to wait in quotation marks for beneficial mutations to arise between the generations so associative learning um, could take place for example if you know you encounter a new kind of predator that you haven't encountered before in your evolutionary history you um, have an encounter with it, you barely escape it, you, you know, maybe you get got, you know, one of your fingers got bitten off or something like that, or you got a bit of a bite. So you, you get away from it, that stimulus then gets processed into remembering what has taken place in that circumstance. And then the next time, because you associate that, uh, that new predator with this kind of a, a negative impact to your continued existence would then enable you to avoid it going forward and you would not have to wait for um, random mutations to uh, reprogram and reorganize your complex reflexes. And that would be associative learning. Oh. Would a reptilian brain, is, is a reptilian brain, for example, the, the, uh, and, I, and, I, and I say this with like uh, a very humble knowledge of what a reptilian brain is, but does a reptilian brain have the ability to, to, to uh, use associative learning? Or, or, or is, is that sort of, uh, you know, gray matter, does that have the ability to, you know, make associative learning me uh, methods? It, it, without the necessity for, you know, to wait for a new mutation? I'm not exactly sure, but if you could imagine that if you ask somebody if you could train a lizard, if you could train a crocodile, mm -hmm. and then if, if, if that person would say, yes, you can train them, then they would be capable of associated learning. But I think that crocodiles are extremely difficult to train and are very much reliant on very complex reflexes to ensure their survival. But that's, that's a really good question. Um, because any, if you think about it, any animal or any organism that has the ability to change its um, behavior that it is, has, you know, inherited um, on the fly during its lifespan would have then the cognitive mechanism or the cognitive ability for associative learning. Interesting. So where does this lead us next? I mean, what happens after, after associative learning? Well, after associative learning, the problem with associative learning is that you actually have to be in the situation. Mm -hmm. You have to be in the situation. You have to expose yourself to the potentially harmful effects of an encounter before you can uh, modify your complex reflexes. So ideally, what you would do is you would 
over evolutionary timeframes, you know, you have more mutations, more mutations, um, you would control the associative learning process. And the way that would work would be that as opposed to actually being in this situation where it could be potentially harmful, you, in a sense, virtualize the encounters and just play it out in a, in a, you know, in a, on a cognitive level. Like inside and your you head. Think about it. Inside, yeah, like inside your head, that's right. So when you think about it, I mean, when you have, um, and I think that's the origin of play, right? Because mm. with, with all this uh, flexibility in your neural makeup, that also comes then with, I mean, originally, if you rely, if everything you rely on is your complex reflexes, right? Then you don't have to think about it. Then it just, you know, stimulus, response, stimulus, response, right? Pre-programmed. But when that becomes more flexible and you can have, you can change that on the fly with associative learning, then, you know, you are a bit clumsy mm -hmm. in, 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 situ in situations that you haven't encountered before. And that is a benefit in the sense that you become more adaptable, but then it's also a bit of a drawback because you don't have, you know, the surefire mechanism of responding to certain stimuli in a, in, a, in a fast and responsive way. So in terms of countering that, um, that could be done through, or that is done in my opinion, through a childhood phase where you engage in play, where you, um, you know, you train your body, you understand your, your motor skills better by training them. And then if you think about, for example, of cats, you know, a young cat, a kitten engaging with a ball of yarn. Yeah. That, that kitten definitely doesn't mistake that ball of yarn for a mouse, but it would train the same skills necessary to engage a mouse later in life. And that, and I wouldn't say that a cat is, you know, imagining the the, um, the ball of yarn to be a mouse or something like this. But the, the cognitive mechanism is the same. Like if we would be imagining something, mm -hmm. and then engaging with uh, with that on a cognitive level in a, in some form of an internal virtualization of that, enabling us for, to train ourselves for the real, for the quotation marks, real encounter. Um, there actually has been some, some studies done where um, a number of people have uh, taken piano lessons, you know, and they were split up in two groups. One group were playing piano and studying piano like normally. So they would sit in front of piano, they would get instructions on what kind of finger movements to make, etc. And then the other group, they would just sit in front of the piano and imagine doing the same kind of finger movements. And of course, the people who have had the actual piano lessons and did their proper finger movements, everything had a better result in the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But those who just imagined it in their heads, they also have noticeable improvements about people who were just sitting in front of a piano, not imagining anything or nothing to do with learning piano playing. I have a little bit of an anecdotal uh, example, perhaps, that might have relevance to what you just said. I used to practice Taekwondo, and um, back in the day, when I when I was about to get into a sparring match or a fight, um, 
my uh, you know different uh, different fighters would have different methods of preparing for for it a, a lot of dudes would just you know listen to music and tune out and black out and and just you know not think about what was going to happen next but i would uh visualize inside my head all right if he does this i'm going to do that i'm going to move to the side all right no if he does that i'm going to counter this way and i and i would you know play over and over and over all these different scenarios inside my head um for you know before going into 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 a fight um it it helped i i think it helped but 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 it had limitations that because sometimes i would uh forget that oh shit i'm in the middle of the fight why am i why am i imagining my next move and i would get caught um so so that mechanism was 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 good before the fight but it was for me in my for me it was unreliable it was hard to turn off once i was in because I remember, you know, I, I I remember kicking my friend in the face. I imagined I was going to kick him in the face. I kicked him in the face. Um and then, you know, my imagination got caught up with like the glory of the moment <laughs> and you know, feeling like a badass and then I got my my ass beat. Um so but 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 I feel like, you know, I I think that's an important thing that we do um in terms of like using our our, our minds to visualize something before it happens and i i wonder like how big is that 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 canyon between the associative uh, learning mechanisms of a reptilian brain i don't know if i'm using it correctly versus the ability of a of you know of a, of a more advanced brain that has um you know that ability to to visualize things and and, and imagine things and, and you know be lessons before they happen like how big is that chasm i, I mean i feel like and how do we bridge it like because i it, the reason why i asked that is like you know isn't that the thing that we want from a self-aware computer uh, that have that ability to for it to like think by itself sort of i mean i don't know if i'm going off on a weird tangent here but what do you think no i totally agree with you i'm not exactly sure how um these kind of ideas are being applied in um, artificial intelligence research. Mm -hmm. But I know that Ben Gertzel, for example, who is leading the China Brain Project, he has an evolutionary approach to artificial intelligence as well. And I think the challenge is just to get the necessary computing power to simulate all of these things. Because in the end of the day, um, you know, if, if you think about it, for example, in terms of imagination, um, you basically have Imagination being, you know, the cognitive availability of soft-coded um, X C to, you know, representation of concepts that you can then that can then trigger, um, you know, external um, that can then serve ex external substitute triggers for certain behaviors, right? And that that is just something when you when you think about it that way, then it is a virtualization in a sense of uh, real situations that you play in your head, and then what you said it was Taekwondo, sports people, visualization in sports, right? Um, thinking about how you're going to do it, what you're going to do it, that is something that's being applied, you know, in, in the real world. So it's, well, I, I'm not an expert in, in artificial intelligence, um, at least not on a practical level, but I think these kind of ideas would be very helpful in that, in, in, in that field as well. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so where are we going? Where where are we taking uh, this magic school bus to? What's the next stop? Okay, so next level, going deeper into the rabbit hole, right? Yes. So, 
we have imagination as the control of, of associative learning. We have associative learning as the control of the complex reflex, and we have the complex reflex as the control of the simple reflex, which is the control of movement, which is the control of your position. Okay. Now, if we take it to the next level, if you control your imagination, right, um, and this is a very simple, this is a very simple exercise that all the listeners can do with us at the same time. If you, uh, so and I will try to control your imagination now by directing you towards, let's say, um, a red sofa where you have, um, you know, uh, a blue kangaroo sitting on it reading the news, newspaper, for example. Yeah, and when you when you imagine that, and you con and now you're controlling your imagination, um. And the controlling of imagination is what I call thinking. So you, you think about something by controlling your imagination in a particular directed fashion. Okay? And then you end up with conscious thought. And that is another level of virtualization where you basically use imagination, the control of imagination, to ponder um, things that can be real or not real. I mean, blue kangaroo on a sofa reading the newspaper. I mean, that's not real right? in, that, in that sense. But you, by, by you thinking about it, it becomes a concept just as real as you remembering what you had for breakfast today. And this is just, you know, and the reason why I say that is because this is in, uh, to, to highlight the, the virtualizing power. You know, we're talking about virtual reality. Basically, your brain is a virtual reality machine. You know, if you can imagine it in your head and you can control your imagination and you can direct it by thinking about things in a certain way, that is, you know, um, creating a virtual reality in your head. I like where you've just taken me. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> awesome. I, I, you know, I, another question, follow-up question. How can we quantify thoughts? I mean, how do we is, – is there any research? Is there anything out there that can show – us how we can quantify a, 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 is you know a, a thought like a, is there is there a way to say this is two thoughts you know that's one you know that blue kangaroo image that's one thought that sentence that's another thought and you know is that, I mean is there a way, is there a way to measure human thought to so that we can like for example say um, Chris's brain is is has the processing ability of twenty thoughts per second, while Stefan Pernard's brain is over nine thousand. Like, you know, how, you see what I'm saying? Like, is there a way to to perhaps, you know, quantify human thoughts and measure, you know, all that that that, you know, that information in, inside someone's mind? I think people have tried it in different ways, and it's, of course, always very tricky. But when you think about it, for example, from the perspective of um, intelligence uh, research and, um, you know, people's IQs, and then you can, you know, uh, have standardized tests and see how people react uh, or uh, give answers to certain questions and how that is, how many questions they answer determines in what kind of a bracket they put themselves. Um, in the end, it becomes a matter of problem solving as a means to achieving certain goals. And I think that is a really good a definition of intelligence. When you say, you know, your ability to reach your goals with the means that you have at your disposal, mm -hmm. that would be the measure of intelligence. And um, the thought processes that go into that, into that endeavor to reach your goals 
with the means that you have at your exposure, that in the end determines, um, you know, the, I don't know, I don't know how to really say it properly, but that determines how good you are at thinking about things. A quick, quick follow up on that. I mean, so, 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 so if you mentioned that the, the image of the blue kangaroo and, and the breakfast I had in the morning are, are just as real to my brain as, as, you know, the, as my laptop sitting in front of me, but, but then, so then in my mind, like, all right, if it's, if it's real, if it exists, is it, is it on a particle level or are, are thoughts, you know, what are thoughts made out of? Are they made of, you know, chemical reactions? I mean, what, what is the composition of a thought in terms of its molecules? Is it, is there an uh, atoms? Are, are they, uh, is there an, is there, are there atoms inside of a, a thought? I mean, I, I know this sounds like a crazy question, but like, you know, this is, I, I, I want to know, like, like, is there weight to a thought? Like, I don't know. Like, I, you know, it's just so interesting. Um, I would definitely say that all thought is just a chemical reaction. Okay. And there are uh, electrical potentialities that are being released, you know, based on the connection of your neural network and everything else. So does a thought have a weight? I think that would be a great question for, um, you know, Vsauce to answer at some point. <laughs> but, when you, but when you think about... Um, um, all energy being mass in the end of the day, you know, E equals MC squared, and your thoughts are being energy, then I think every every thought has a bit of a weight as well, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. I mean, uh, yeah. Thank you for that. Oh. I, I just wish we found a me like a, a method of like, a, or like a, you know, how kilograms, you know, and, and we have meters and stuff, like perhaps we could find a way to, you know, the, you know, quantify like you know thoughts like that's a nano thought or a mega thought or an ultra thought i don't know <laughs> absolutely no i i think in the end of the day uh, that is you know the, the oculus rift obviously you know was a bit of a mega uh, you know a mega thought there and with all of us we have little tiny nano thoughts every every second of every day mm -hmm. that we you know know in may, might not even know in that particular moment and then so what determines the difference between the two? Difficult to say, but I guess it, it has to do with the impact it has on society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And okay, so 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 how it has an impact on society as a whole? I feel like we're we're heading over to the next station, the next bus stop. Where where, where are we heading next now? Well, I um, have one more stage in the evolution of cognition, and okay. that is you know the control of thought, thought control, right okay. now. And this is um, a bit of the realm of conspiracy theories all, all over the world. But when you think about it, what controls your thoughts, you know, what controls the way that you think about things and that are your beliefs. So your beliefs about, your, about the world is how you think about it, right? And um, I have one particular example that I would like to share, and that is before, uh, you know, most people, when you think about um, dropping a feather, Right, uh, it would it would fall. You would think about that, and then you imagine really dropping a feather, and then you would most people would think about it as you know moving slowly to the ground, etc. But when you think about it in a different, that is your belief. It has something to do with your belief on how you know probably subconsciously you know the feather interacts with the air and how that is you know the drag is preventing it from dropping down fast, etc., etc. But when you remove the the air, for example, f 
from a particular vessel and then you drop a feather in there, it would drop very fast mm-hmm. just because there wouldn't be any, any, any air resistance. And most of the people listening to this podcast, they, they would agree with that. That's how it would work. But if you would go back, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure when they discovered air as a medium, but if you go back, let's say, 200 years now, and you would say, imagine uh, dropping a feather where there's no air. It would be impossible for them to think about it because they didn't have, you know, the, um, the belief structure or the understanding, let's say. A particular, you can say, understanding is just a particular form of belief, right, to really process these things. So that would be then the belief in my model, at least, would be then the highest form of cognitive, um, you know, um, of cognitive function. And then your ability to reconcile your beliefs and your understandings with the feedback that you get from the actual, from your actual reality, you know, in accordance with your goals that you're trying to reach, that is then how you would become, you know, a better person and, and become a better, better at achieving the things that you would like, that you would like to achieve. Including your goals, modifying your goals in line with what is worthwhile achieving. Let me ask you this: the question, do we have free will? Is, is it a matter of uh, first? You know, I'd like to know your opinion if 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 we do or we we do not. But but I also like to think if um, is it a matter of whether we believe we have free will or is it a fact? You know, will we uncover that it's a fact? Yes, we have free will or. No, actually, we're much more simpler. We don't. I mean, what do you what do you think? I mean, free will, as um, if you think about uh, us being made up of uh, atoms and their chemical reactions that determine our thought patterns, etc., etc., then free will would have to be an illusion, because if you think that there is something that is beyond. Um, chemical reactions that would give us truly free free will um, that would have to be magic because that it would have to be an effect without a cause mm-hmm. uh, rooted in chemical interactions so in that sense I think uh, free will is not something that we really truly have but we have the illusion of free will and that is very powerful um, so in, in, in that sense we do have we do have free will as a mecha- as a survival mechanism, um, and I think the difference really doesn't really matter. You know, as as long because if you think about what is illusion in our perception of reality and ourselves, as well as our cognitive function, and what is really real, you know, if you go too down that too for, too much down that path, you're going to end up in a place where you're just not functional anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I'm already you like <laughs> I'm already malfunctioning thinking about this like. <laughs> But yeah, it's huh. Well, sorry, you were saying. No, that that's pretty much it. I I don't think we truly have free will, mm-hmm. you know. But I think the illusion for free will is good enough to make us work pretty well. The illusion of free will. Uh, let me try to let that marinate for a second. So the illusion of free will is good enough to to let us to make us function and and let us survive in in, in the world that we're in. Hmm. That that word illusion for some reason just doesn't sit right in my stomach. But at the same time, I don't have, you know, I just don't know enough about myself and my brain to like, you know, for example, like, you know, fundamentally, how can something 
be unbiased when it's trying to study itself. So, so like, you know, we're, we're here trying to understand a, a bit about the human brain because this is all leading up to virtual reality. I know this, this podcast has been like more of a, an awesome, you know, magic school bus ride through the human brain, but we're leading up to something, you know, the, the grand finale, which is all how, how virtual reality, you know, and, and we dropped hints, you know, you dropped hints as to how virtual reality ties into this, but you know, just fundamentally, like the the question arises in my head, then how can we, uh, you know, understand? How can the human brain understand itself? You know, especially specific specifically when you think about science, you you know, in order to, and I, I and I don't know if I'm right or wrong in this, but like if in order you want to understand something, you need to step away from it and see it from a different you know perspective, like you're a Martian or something. So how can we humans understand this thing that we are trapped inside of? Yeah, it's a bit difficult to understand something um, by stepping away from it if that thing is yourself. Um, it's very difficult to jump out of your skin, you know. Um, and I think the fundamental problem is not only that, but also the problem of, of what is actually real. And I think that leads us into the next topic, which is how real is this real that we talk about when we talk about virtual reality? Because it seems like um, there's a clear delineation between that which is virtual, which is clearly not real, and then the, the real, which is, you know, real and, you know, clearly not virtual. And I think it's not that such a clear-cut distinction there. Um, when you think about it, for example, in the terms of um, uh, Plato's cave, I mean, Plato was a philosopher back, um, you know, with the ancient Greeks over 2,000 years ago. And he basically uh, had this idea that reality as we perceive it is really not as real as it's making itself out to be. And he had this allegory of the cave. And what he said is we are basically, you know, our minds are basically like chained inside of a cave. And the real things, you know, the quotation mark real things that we see are just reflections or shadows on the wall by things that are walking past the fire outside the cave. And that gives us some idea about, you know, what kind of thing or what kind of basic shape it has, but it really doesn't give us the full understanding about the thing in itself. And go ahead. No, yeah, Plato was, a, sorry, but, but yeah, but I, I, that's a, a very good example. I feel like Plato was really ahead of his, his time in that, with that thought because now you think about how the human eye process, processes information and how you know it actually processes light and then you think about like holy crap i'm just it, this eyeball thing is just this organic mechanism that is you know having light meaning being reflected on the back of it and then you have this these sensors that are processing the information back to the brain I, I, it just feels like that's exactly sort of what plato was talking about in, in the cave I, I i mean i don't know if that's a weird analogy but yeah it's I feel like that man was uh, on some shrooms or something to discover that. But please continue. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, what Plato is basically saying, we are only getting a certain spectrum of reality. We're not getting full reality. And that is absolutely in line with our modern understanding. You know, our our eye can only uh, uh, process a certain particular uh, slice of the full bandwidth of, of the electromagnetic spectrum. So we are seeing, you know, certain aspects of red, green, and blue. And then we, we kind of somehow concoct that into the illusion that we call our reality or that we call the real. Mm -hmm. But you're not seeing x-ray, you're not seeing infrared, you're not seeing all these things. Um, 
that is also part of reality. And, you know, how can you see you are actually seeing reality as it really is with this by discarding, you know, 99.9% of the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. And of course, science helps a lot there. But just as us as human beings, you know, um, that is a bit of a problem to, to say, ah, oh, yeah, well, this is real or, you know, well, it's only as real as your limited senses can convey it to you. Yeah. And that is basically the shadow that Plato was talking about. And uh, Immanuel Kant, so he is, you know, 2,000 years after Plato, mm-hmm. he basically reformulated Platonism in Enlightenment terms. And he called the thing in itself is the thing that we can't really grasp with our limited senses. He called that the noumenon. And uh, that is the actual physical object that in Plato's sense was casting the shadow at the wall, right? And um, all that we really can experience is the phenomenon. So the phenomenon of a chair or a table or something like this that has a certain um, experiential impact on us but has really very little to do with the real thing in itself. Uh, you know I, that that uh, the, that thought that you just said about how we can only uh, process light in the r- red, green, and, and blue spectrum. Um, you know that uh, brought up the thought of this 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 research where they found out that there's a certain percentage of women, like one percent, two percent of women, that can actually that actually have a mutation that can allow them to see an extra color color in the spectrum. And and so when you and so if if you're listening to this podcast and you are uh, a uh, a human with the XX chromosome. If you uh, so the in order to prove that you have that extra chromosome, that you have that extra light percept- receptor. Um, if you look up at the sky and you see hues of pink, then you have it. Then you are uh, a unicorn that can see uh, that has that mutation. Um, but I, you know, for me, how that would uh, apply, I I would love to have an augmented left eye. I want to have uh, a left eye that can see, you know, it's kind of like this undersea crab that can see 16 colors of the spectrum, like UV and, you know, a, a violet and uh, x-ray. Like, I want a left eye because, you know, I want to be able to have my right eye see normally, but uh, but I want like a, a left or right eye that has, uh, you know, all these extra uh, receptors and all of a sudden I can see the universe much in a much more real composition if you see what i'm saying i don't know what conclusions i would draw from it i just think it'd be really cool but who knows? Well, I, I agree with you 100 percent. and the, the, the example with the sky imagine you have a, a sensor on your you know uh, on, on the front of your rift and that sensor would then be that receptor that only you know a very small percentage of people have and then you would actually experience the um um, the sky or everything else really using that fourth color receptor and in that sense wouldn't then the virtual reality presented to you via technological means be more real than the reality that you think you can see with your own human senses <sighs> and I think and I think that would that that's where we're coming full circle now isn't it yes because I, I, I don't know if you hear that sound but that is the sound hold on you hear that that's the sound of my mind being blown that was that was crazy <laughs> that the, man that was uh, just yeah you know wow i mean the, because you, when you think about it that technology could very well be in the in the in the in the at the tips of, of our of our fingers in the future um it's not too hard to think that we can wa- one day walk around with uh you know the next generation oculus rift that all of a sudden has the ability to let you watch all the colors of the universe and all the different wavelengths and light waves of of the universe uh, 
I don't know if it's science fiction, but I, the, the, the possibility of that would be insane. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think our brain is so flexible and malleable, it's really only limited by the you know, primitive, relatively simple input mechanisms that we have right now in forms of the retina, you know, our ability for smell and taste and touch and sound. And um, given how flexible the brain is and how infinitely malleable it is, I think we could very easily adapt, well, in terms of evolutionary time frames, let's say 100 years, um, to uh, essentially limited sensory, um, sensory input uh, via technological means, and then create a virtual reality, um, you know, that is by, effect, by an order of magnitudes more real than this real reality that we are trapped in right now. Let me ask you this, because I, I am of the opinion that I think that virtual reality um, and this uh, technology is a portal into the human brain. Um, perhaps you can en enlighten me, uh, or, or if you can perhaps dis disperse that belief in me that... that you know, can we can we acquire new knowledge about the human brain through virtual reality? Absolutely, I think um, human beings are uh, on a very fundamentally level visual um, visual beings. And if you look at you know a spreadsheet of information um, or something like this, then it's very difficult to pinpoint that piece of information that is really relevant to solving a particular problem. But the highly immersive, you know, visualization um, capacities of virtual reality will definitely play a part in regards to understanding all sorts of um, um, all sorts of uh, phenomena that we currently are not very well uh, equipped to to study on a, on a fundamental level. And I think uh, understanding the brain and, and artificial intelligence is definitely going to be one of those. How do you think? Uh you know, governments are going to react to this um, new real. I feel like what's happen, what's going to happen is you're going to have a new real estate boom <laughs> inside inside the metaverse. I mean, because it's going to be it's going to get to a point where it's just going to there's there's going to be no almost no uh, how do you say uh, almost no distinction between a, a quote unquote real life and and the, vir the virtual life. And do you think that like it's going to get to a point where governments are going to say, all right, you know, it's it's good enough. All the laws that apply in the real world, we're going to have to, like, bring them over to the metaverse. You know, so no fucking around, everybody. You know, do you think that's a possibility in the future? Oh, I think it is a possibility right now. I mean, okay. um, if you steal something, you know, in the, in the virtual world, um, you know, for example, if you somehow circumvent... Um, um, uh, copyright protection mechanisms on software, then that is theft, you know, according to the law. Uh, the same will apply to the virtual world, but I think in the virtual world we're going to have uh, laws in that sense that are not even comprehensible outside of virtual reality, and I don't really have a good example here, but just with our increased ability to process information on, on, a, on a different level that will re, that will uh, result in different social structures that will be that will have to be governed in one way or the other and at some form the government will, the government will definitely come into that and um, yeah try to be important you know in that space as well do you think uh, I mean what what do you think will be just the long-term impacts on on uh, on the human psyche um, of, of having a technology 
you know, so smartphones are ubiquitous these days. And, you know, I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who would say, uh, who would deny the fact that they've changed who we are as human beings. I've... I've changed as a person, uh, you know, if if you have two two dimensions, two parallel universes, and one in which smartphones don't exist, and another one is, you know, this one, the 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 two Chris, the two Chris's, and then you have the two Chris's meet, they would have, they would be completely different people, I feel like, uh, with different, you know, thought, I feel like even thought patterns, definitely different habits, so, you know, what, what sorts of habits, what sorts of thought patterns, you know, cultural, social, um, will will arise from 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 the invention of the of the metaverse and and the ubiquity of virtual reality um difficult to say but one one of the really great books that i have enjoyed um um is called accelerando by charles stross have you had a chance to read that at all it is free online accelerando by charles stross it's really exploring the idea of accelerating change virtual reality in the sense of simulated realities um, and how that would change society, etc. It's fantastic. I really recommend everybody to read that. Cool. I will uh, put that on the links in the in the show notes to, to make sure that people can check that out. That sounds awesome. What is the thing that, uh, you know, perhaps gives you the most uh, uh, hesitation about the prospect of the metaverse? I don't have any hesitations um, at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are certain risks in regards to gathering all this information um, and then using it in a nefarious way by corporations, by governments, and that is, of course, a very scary uh, prospect. But look, um, there's always everything when there's something new, every time when there's something new, there are challenges. I actually um, I have a short-term negative but long-term very positive outlook but so I'm, I'm a huge optimist and that goes into the the same is true for the areas of artificial intelligence you know a lot of people are uh, scared about artificial intelligence in the sense that it would you know it's always going to get us um, going to kill us all and all that stuff I, I just don't buy into that I think the more intelligence we're going to be I think the more compassionate and the more you know um, um, the more we're going to really realize our true potential as the human species and what will come after us. Let's go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, because you've just opened another door that I'm going to walk through with you. Um, when I think of virtual reality, when I look at the Rift, and, and I think this isn't a unique thought, I, I feel like a lot of people have had this thought, but virtual reality, in my mind, is um, an empathy mechanism. You know, when, you, when I see the Rift, I see it as a an empathy machine <laughs> like because all of a sudden uh, we will have the ability if we so choose to to speak into the world uh, that we all reside in uh, especially in today's world where I, I feel like empathy is you know that ability to put yourself in the shoes of someone else and, and really try to introspect and feel what it would be like to be that other human being that sort of that that sort of mechanism and cognitive mechanism is very I feel like it's is very hard to put together. It just feels like it's, it takes a long time. It requires a certain amount of time and introspection. And in today's world, with where information is just flying everywhere, and you have your smartphone, and you're, you got to keep track of your Twitter, your Instagram, your everything, and our intention spans are getting smaller and shorter, it, it, this is where I feel like virtual reality can put a stop and put a, a bit of a break 
to our hyper reality in terms of like oh you know all this information that we have going on in our attention spans and perhaps can you know give us insights into who we are all over the world and and finally in my mind you know when Kurzweil talks about the singularity being you know when machines can can you know surpass human intelligence I don't I don't really see that as I I think that's a possibility but I really in my mind the singularity is the the formation of a singular collective consciousness and it would be through the creation of the metaverse that all of a sudden all of us are so connected to each other because we can see who we are i know what it'd be like to be a brazilian person living in a favela i know what it'll be like to be a woman growing up in saudi arabia i know what it'll be like to be a chinese garment worker because i i've seen it i've lived it i know what it looks like i've seen that world um and it's so. I feel like it's. It'd be so much more powerful as a storytelling tool and, and as a and as a, a way to create empathy. I feel like humanity, as we speak, is going through a crisis of empathy. We just don't give enough fucks about each other to 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 make the collective change that will require us to you know get past the 21st century. Really, you know, why are we having wars still? Have we not learned anything from history yet? Why are we developing weapons that are you know that are mass that that are capable of mass murder when we have asteroids that who knows when they when the fuck they're coming and volcanoes that who knows when the fuck they're going to erupt and if we could just put some of those billions of dollars that we used for mass death and mass incarceration and 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 and, and, and I'm not talking about like socialism I'm just talking about you know thinking about the goddamn future you know I I feel like this is where VR has its biggest potential you know just giving us ability to, giving us the ability to like to introspect and empathize with each other where do you i mean am i too idealistic am i naive what, what do you think on that thought chris i think you're hitting really on the most fundamental and most important question that we could possibly answer with virtual reality and that is the matter of how can we become more empathetic how can we become how can we grow you know as a as a society as a human species and i would like to answer or give you my perspective on it probably coming very much out of the left field like for a lot that. of people. And that is, I think that we as a species are focusing too much on what is real and what is true at this point in time of our evolution. And let me, let me uh, talk about this a bit more. I mean, we already spoke about the real and that what we call the real is really not, well, really not that real, right? Um, the same is true when you think about, when you look at the sky and you, you think the sky is blue, but the sky really isn't blue. The sky has all kinds of shades of blue and then maybe a bit of white here and there and then, um, you know, certain things that you just pass over. And just for convenience sake, you call the sky blue, right? Or you call the wall white or something like this, or the night dark or black or something like this. But all of these are just approximations of how, um, you know, things are in themselves. And a really good article on this is written by Nietzsche. It's called On Truth and Lying in the Non-Moral Sense, where he is saying we are really just focusing in our thought process on the things that, have, that are affecting us, you know. So when we, when we think, you know, um, about a particular situation, we think, oh, is it, is it too warm for us? Is it too cold for us or something like this? 
an apple or sugar doesn't intrinsically taste sweet. It just tastes sweet to us. You know, women and men are not intrinsically sexy. They are just sexy to us. Okay. And when you think about logic, it's the same thing. I mean, logic assumes that there are identical cases in reality. And for practical purposes, you know, that's just, that, that might work. You know, you, you, you count grains of sand and you assume that there's a metaphysical identity um, that allows us to count one, two, three, four, five. But all of these, every grain of sand is different. And there is just no metaphysical identity in that sense. The same is true for science. You know, when you think about it, science doesn't prove anything. Science can only be disproven. So you can never prove anything in science. The best you can hope for is you, you achieve a certain percentage of certainty, you know. And when you say for convenience, you know, we have now discovered the Higgs boson or whatever, right? Then that what, what you actually should say is we are, we have, a, you know, 0.00001% chance that we haven't discovered it properly. And that is true for a very small, tiny fragment in science where, you know, an $8 billion machine is being employed to explore such a tiny fragment of our reality. In the human sciences, you can be lucky when you can uh, talk of an R squared of 0.4 or something like this. And the R squared is the certainty factor. So when you think about it, zero means there's absolutely no a correlation with the data and one is a perfect correlation with the data then a 0 0.3 or 0 0.4 means you know there's a 60 percent chance you're wrong and a 40 percent chance you're right so you have you get something out of it but you can never be 100 percent certain about things when you think about things and reality in these in, in this way you know it is not only that we don't see reality as it is but we are, we are mistaking things for real that are actually absolutely illusory. For example, um, you know, photoshopped models, for example, you know, that's going, they don't look like that. They don't, it's not even, they don't even exist like that. But that is somehow a beauty standard that we are subscribed to as the real or what John Baudrillard called the hyper real. Yeah, we have, we are substituting that which is real or you know, what we, what we can see as the real with an illusion in our minds about what actually real is. And I'm, I have to make the uh, return to your question now, and I will, uh, trust me. And it, it is just a matter of, you know, uh, exposing these kind of um, uh, modes of thought and modes of consciousness that are, that are really fundamentally false. Huh? And when you think about it from a... Um, and now we're going very deep into philosophy here, but um, consumerism, for example, is essentially the fetishization of bourgeois society. You know, asking us to keeping up with the Jones, a convenient ideology, you know, to keep the machine running. Where, and where does this leave us? I mean, we can't really talk about the real and the true. So I think we really have to focus more on meaning and what is meaningful. Um, and when you think about what meaning actually is, meaning is contradiction, right? So you come, you understand what hot means because you know what cold means, right? Mm -hmm. You understand 
um, you understand the large because you know the small, right? So that is where meaning comes into the into the picture. You can't say this is truly sweet or this is truly sour, but you can say this is sweet because this is sour. Okay, and that, then you, you you can derive some kind of a meaning from that. And the, um, to give you a bit of an example, poets poets they are really pushing the boundaries of our understanding and of meaning. Um, specifically, here an example of Shakespeare, for example. Right, and I'm I'm a terrible terrible reader, but um, what he writes, for example, is what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale. Right? Now, what is he talking about when he talks about it like this? Is, he, is Juliet really a flaming ball of fire, you know, a million kilometers away, or something like this? No, he's, he's, he's um, creating contradictions to create meaning for us to really get a better understanding of the world. And now, when we think about it from that perspective, when we think about meaning arising from contradictions, then you would expect the highest form of meaning to be the biggest contradiction. And, and now I want to ask you a question, Chris. What do you think is the biggest contradiction? Or if you would have to construct a contradiction, a maximum possible contradiction, what would it be? Death. Death as opposed to life? Yeah. Yeah, I think that is actually a very good answer, and that lies at the very heart of evolutionary processes, which we had discussed earlier. But I would like to take it a bit further. You know, if you say Juliet is the sun, then you could say X equals Y, mm -hmm. and you could say then the biggest contradiction would be if everything is everything else, or in put in other terms, that everything is one. You know what I see? You know what I'm saying? Oh, I see where you're taking me. Okay. Uh, and when, you think, when you think about it that way, you know, everything is one, then you are, in, then you are very deep into Buddhism, mm -hmm. where the Buddhists talk about Maya, which is the illusion of separateness. And that is really the realization that there is no difference that is real, and that is this you know, this, this ultimate contradiction of, of the unity of, of all of existence. Huh. Hmm. That is very deep. And how do we uh, use... How do, you, how do you leverage VR or the metaverse or any technology? How do you, how do you leverage something to... to to give people uh, or just plant the seed at least plant the seed that that this is that this is a thought worth thinking about at least just worth thinking about you know it just you could could you know I, I, and and I'm basically I'm talking about like how do we mind control people how do we get people to <laughs> to think this way <laughs> well that's basically back to we know that the control of thought is the is basically done by beliefs Right. Mm. So we are entering a spiritual uh, dimension here, and um, 
people might be banging their heads already at the at the table asking where is this all going right yeah. but, but just bear with me for a little longer and that is when you think about it i'm not sure if you're familiar with joseph campbell at all he has written books like the hero's journey etc yeah. etc yeah. so he has um he has this idea of the transformation of consciousness and i think um that, you know the transformation of consciousness through experiences and i think that is going to be that could be you know one if not the killer application for virtual reality would be um positive transformation of consciousness and there is this whole movement of transformational festival culture out there um I'm not sure if you heard about that, where people go there and then they have these amazing experiences that brings them more in line, you know, mm -hmm. um, with um, with society and they become more empathetic and all these things that you have mentioned there. And now imagine if we could create a virtual reality experience that would have the same um, effect on consciousness from a transformational level and mm -hmm. bring these kind of understandings out to a larger audience. And, and I'm sorry if, if I mean, this is this is we are now probably back at the beginning of the rabbit hole. We have gone so deep down it, uh, but um, um, I, I hope this makes some kinds of sense to 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 some of you out there and to you, Chris, because I think that's in the end of the day is my ultimate goal is to um, effect positive transformation of consciousness through virtual reality. You are going to initiate the world's first virtual reality religion. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, I think that the, the that killer app idea of, of you know, that is, that is a fascinating idea. I think that what if we could find, a, 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 you know, and this is, again, maybe a fool's errand, but to think that we could perhaps find an app that or, or make an app a piece of software or where it be a video game or, a, or just a, a, a thing like a, like like um like a life like 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 live life somewhere else you know like put someone in that put people before you graduate high school you got to go inside a sensory deprivation tank you got to wear a rift and you're gonna be inside an experience that will take you through dozens and perhaps dozens and dozens of experiences of what it's like to be different people living in different parts of the world knowing different things experiencing different things pain suffering love death happiness and you build someone's character through the creation of all these experiences and they come out of there and they like and they have this a uh, new foot because i feel like a lot of human beings on planet earth um whether they they're, they're born in poor you know circumstances or they're born into wealth they you know you you have this unbalance especially in the world we live in today i feel like there's there's such an unbalance between the, the rich and the poor you know you you if someone that grows up fully rich all their lives or fully poor all their lives they haven't i feel like you you grow up with an unbalanced sort of character because you you know if you had the ability to you know uh, to to live a, a, a perhaps a a, a life of, of exploration of questioning of curiosity and, and and perhaps with virtual reality there could be one day something uh, that could that could people can opt into and say you know what I you know I I'm I'm missing character I'm I need to experience death I, uh, and suffering so that I and failures so that I know what it's like and sort of how we've been talking about how I you know we imagine things and we imagine lessons inside of our inside of our heads you know let's do that uh, uh, let's do the you know let's use virtual reality to do the imagination for you so that 
you can uh, come out of that experience and be like, ah, all right, now I know what it's mean, what it means to really suffer. Now I know what it means to be successful. And now I can, now I have some tools, some character building, some emotional building tools that I can lead my life in a better direction in the real world. Again, rabbit hole craziness, but but I, I wonder if if that's ever even possible. <laughs> to, like, oh, absolutely. Look, Chris, certain truths cannot be conveyed via um, via language alone. True. And uh, I think we have missed, or we are missing out on the ritualistic aspects that our forefathers have tapped into to, um, you know, create unity with our environment and to really help us understand with them, you know, much deeper. Now, if um, and that, I think that is a very experiential process. And if you could create a virtual reality uh, experience, that is, you know, it, that is all about experience. In the end of the day, it is an experience where you are present somewhere, right? That will you go in, you have a transformation of consciousness, and you come out, and you just, you know, you are switched on, you are Buddha, kind of uh, on on that level, right? How good would that be? That, that, that would be that. There couldn't be a higher goal for what to achieve with virtual reality. Yeah. Are you still with me? I'm still here. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think we lost everybody else by this point. But <laughs> <laughs> well, just just some thoughts for people to to go a little bit crazy over, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've touched, uh, I mean, in, throughout this conversation, we've had, you've, you've taken me on a very pleasant ride, and I, I, I have to thank you for that, and I, I, I'll have to put it off to the next time we do this again, because uh, I'm running a little bit at a time. You've been amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, and, and your, all your enlightening thoughts, and, 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 and all the, uh, uh, just all the questions. That I feel like I'm walking away with a lot more questions than answers inside my mind, but I feel like that's a good thing. I feel like that's that's what this is about. These discussions, these conversations are about to, um, you know, to just you know inspire questioning. If anything, people are just thinking like, what are they thinking? <laughs> that's a question. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, so so Stefan, how can people stay in touch? How can people? When is the book coming out? Uh, you know how how we how do we follow you? All, you know all that good stuff. How do we stay in touch? Um, you can just um, um, always contact me on Skype. If you just search for Stefan Pernard, then uh, we can have a bit of a chat if you like. Or if you want to send me an email, just send an email to contact at vrv.com.au or uh, find me on Reddit or Facebook or whatever. I'm I'm everywhere. Awesome, awesome. Um, and and when is the book coming out? It just 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 to. Oh yeah, sorry. The book. Look, I'm still working on it. My tentative uh, time frame is before consumer version one, and we all really don't know when that's going to happen. But I guess by the end of the year should be pretty good. Very cool. I'm super excited, and I can't wait to have you on again so that we can uh, go deeper into uh, the rabbit hole, explore parts inside of uh, your mind and my mind that we didn't know were there honestly i you know you've you've inspired new thoughts inside of me like you know a lot of the a lot of times i have like you know i i go into these interviews and, and uh, not well not all the time but like sometimes i you know i i sort of have these preset thoughts or preset questions that i that i know are surefire questions that are going to be like oh you know this is going to i wonder what the, how they're going to react this time around but you know, through 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 your, I mean, your format, the way we had this conversation, I feel like you just, you know, constantly I was thinking about new questions that I've never asked before. So I I have to thank you for that. Honestly, it was it was a total blast, and I can't wait to do it again. <laughs> 
Thank you, thank you so much for your for your time. Um, I think you were you were the person, perfect person to have this discussion with, and um, I hope the listeners got something out of it. Um, I know we went down the rabbit hole pretty deep this time, <laughs> but I think we managed to make the connection between of our evolutionary history, um, you know, um, the virtual aspects of reality, the real aspects of the virtual, um, and maybe even have some spiritual um, uh, connections made here where we. Um, can um, have some hope for the future, where if we even if we can't uh, have a, you know 100% idea about what is real and what is true, you know through um, meaning, we can we can still find uh, you know a purpose uh, purpose in what we do and, and and how we move forward. So thank you very much for your time. Because really enjoyed myself. And bam. <laughs>